It's great to be here today to get the chance to speak a bit about um, a strange, beautiful excitement and Catherine Mansfield. The first thing I, I want to do today is acknowledge uh, this year as Suffrage 125, um, the 125th anniversary of, of women's suffrage uh, in New Zealand, a, a hinge point in our political history and a, quite a big uh, project for, for Ministry of Culture and Heritage, I, I believe, and other, and other, and other departments. Um, and in this regard, I want to share a fresh and relevant connection to, to Mansfield and her family of origin. I was pleased to unearth information about the activist role of Annie Beecham, KM's mother, in the landmark 1893 election. Now, at the time uh, this occurs, the Beechams were living at the end of the Green Karori Valley. I came to see Mrs B as a woman of vigour, anything but a shrinking violet the delicate soul portrayed in many of her daughter's stories. We know that her husband, Harold, was a prominent Liberal Party activist. At times, he was even seen as a mouthpiece or a proxy for, for Richard Seddon, a close personal friend of the Beecham's. But little is known about Annie's po political leanings or activities. As we know, the new Electoral Act was signed into law on the 19th of September, 1893, giving all women in New Zealand the right to vote. But it was a little over, it was a little over one month before voter enrolment closed for that year's election. So getting women registered on the electoral rolls became an urgent priority for suffragists up and down the country. On the 21st of October, 1893, Annie attended a packed enrolment meeting at the old parochial hall in Karori, on Karori Road where KM, her, uh, her daughter, attended Bible classes. 25 of the women present at the enrolment meeting formed themselves into a committee. Their secretary was none other than Annie Beecham. The Karori group got cracking at, to get local women enrolled in the new Wellington suburb seat. They also worked to ensure that pro-suffrage candidate Dr Alfred Newman, that's not Dr Alfred E Newman, uh, was elected. I also learned that Annie was an activist on behalf of her children. The minute books of the Karori Borough Council, held at the wonderful Wellington City Archives, uh, helped me here. I learned she pestered the tiny municipality to build a proper pathway on swampy Karori Road, where Kathleen and her sisters walked every day to school. She also, ha also hassled them for, for lighting as well. Um, during my research for this book, I was privileged to make many such wonderful discoveries about KM's formative years. At Wellington Public Library, uh, at Wellington City Library, Public Library, I, I discovered his, his little friend, a story she'd, she, that she wrote at age 11, showing, showing that she was published seven years earlier than previously thought. A sentence buried in one of half a dozen volumes of a diary helped me set the record straight on how Annie and Harold met, because we, we didn't know that. Um, and I was able to identify the name of Tiropiha Motoroa, a Pipitia-based rangatira, in another early story of hers, although she spelled his name wrong. Um, just one, one letter. Um, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was fascinating to um, reimagine the, the bare asphalt lanes of Thorndon that we know so well as a heavily wooded coastal landscape Māori knew as Hokawakawa, wind in the, in the, in the Kawakawa. 
I found an account of scarecrows being erected around modern-day Murphy Street, probably near where the Holy Bagel or the Royal Society is, um, in the 1850s to, pre to prevent huge flocks of kakariki parrots from eating grain planted for crops. These brightly coloured birds with red top knots nested in hills by the tiny Pakuao Kainga, located across the road from where the KM Birthplace House now stands. In a moment, I'll explore in detail the centrepiece of my book, the reason the Beechams moved from Karori to, to Thorndon, from Thorndon to Karori in 1893. But first, I will take a deep breath. My life may depend on it. I don't need to tell this audience that researching and writing books is immersive and obsessive. But when it comes to the life of KM, the activity can threaten your health. I will now offer a cautionary tale in, in what happened 70 years ago to the distinguished KM researcher and collector Guy Morris. Trained as a lawyer, Morris served as resident uh, commissioner on Niue when the island was still a New Zealand colony in the 1920s. After a term as an Auckland magistrate, Morris dedicated his retirement to the study of KM. And then in, in May 1849, uh, 1949, he came to Wellington to parade his latest discoveries. A good friend, the journalist and bookman, Pat Lawler, said, Guy had spent most of his spare time investigating and assembling everything he could lay his hands on regarding KM. Photos, postcards, valuable first editions, correspondence with those who knew her. And so one day in May, he stood up at the Turnbull to give, his lecture on his, to give a lecture on his pet subject. At the time, uh, Turnbull, of course, was located in the old brick building, still over on Bowen Street. And, and Pat Lawler takes up the story. What a perfect setting. Around him were men and women who had known KM in her girlhood. There were students who knew her intimately through the written word. There were bibli bibliophiles who enthused over the many rare editions grouped for the occasion about the room. And the radiant centre of all these memories, personalities and printed records was Morris inspired to excitement by the occasion and what he had to impart. He opened up brilliantly and with wonderful clarity. His address was so clear and vital, almost overwhelming in its interest. Suddenly, a strange manner came over him. His voice became low and more rapid. I suggested to the chairman that Morris should give his address seated However, he hurried on only more rapidly, his voice dropping lower. I gently suggested that he should take his seat, and then he seemed to collapse. Several days later, he died in Wellington Hospital. Where's the chair? It would be fair to say that KM had had an arresting effect on dear old Guy. Over the next two decades, his widow, Maud Morris, kept up the good work of collecting Mansfieldiania. And in 1979, uh, Turnbull acquired the huge Morris trove. I believe it's two linear metres 
of material on the shelves here. So the Morris contribution did not go to waste. As promised, I'll now explore the Beecham's move from Thorndon to Karori in an extremely measured way. At the time KM was born on Tinakori Road, uh, on, on um, Tinakori Road, up the road from here, um, the colonial capital was anything but a healthy city. What a difference half a century makes. Take this recollection of George McMorran, that Hillary Stace I know, I know loves, a dreamy account of a childhood growing up around the shores of the Inner Harbour in what he called a Robinson Crusoe kind of world. He recalled the, quote, fine white sandy beach that ran from Pipitia to Oriental Bay and wrote of fishing for eels on the edge of the harbour with a toy toy stem and a line fashioned of fax fibre. Kakariki and other birds flew in clouds over Hokawakawa and Tiaro. By the time KM was born, Wellington was an unspoilt paradise no more. It was the colony's so-called corner store, an opulent capital business centre and fastest growing city in the, in the whole colony, exceeding 30,000 people. And as we'll see, it was growing too fast. New arrivals fleeing the overcrowding filth and high mortality of industrial Britain were shocked to find that the life-threatening bacterial diseases of the old world on their doorsteps. In 1889, the pristine waters of Tifanganui Atara that little George and his friends had once frolicked in had become a dumping ground for the city's sewage. An incendiary report to the city council blamed the, the polluted harbour for contributing to the 75 local deaths that year caused, caused by the infectious disease typhoid we know as Salmonella enterica typhi. 49 of those deaths were in children under five. Their report provides a second image. Numbers of children, particularly on the sunny days, congregated about the mouths of the main sewers of the city, just where the contents empty into the bay, amusing themselves by fishing, etc., and seated in many cases right in the middle of the odours that arise from the drains. A sort of reproach in that child's <laughs> face. It's just me. Um, which brings me to the infectious disease epidemic that scythed through the capital between 1885 and 1891, killing hundreds. One of the victims was Gwendolyn, Catherine Mansfield's baby sister. By its end, 548 deaths were chalked up in a, catast in a catastrophic public health event. Uh, this, this public health event is missing from official, official records in the city. And it's, it's, this, is a, and this event is a central theme in, in the book. I argue that the climate of fear created by the crisis sent the Beechams, along with other terrified local parents, out to safer places on the outskirts. The birthplace house on Tinakori Road was at the front lines of the epidemic. Right behind was a deep gully that served as the local rubbish tip and manure dump. In 1886, a city councillor described the spot as, quote, a reeking mass of corruption and a sort of fetid abomination. The wonder was not that the residents had typhoid fever, but that they did, was not that the residents had typhoid fever, but that they did not have it. Does that make sense? Anyway. <laughs> Mansfield herself wrote of the place, quote, spanned 
by an iron suspension bridge and how the stench of decayed refuse streamed up. And so in Easter 1893, the Beechams quit inner city Thorndon. Their destination was Karori, a green suburb in a, in a wide grassy valley, promoting itself as a safe haven from pestilence. Beautiful Karori and Melrose were advertised as, quote, places where children may be reared without the, the doctor's constant presence. The little borough promoted itself as, quote, the natural sanatorium of Wellington. Pure air, good water, and lovely scenery. Councillors even came up with a motto for beauty and health, with a symbol of a rose. The family didn't return to Thorndon until 1898, by which time prevaricating city fathers had finally been forced to install a modern sewerage scheme, ending the annual death toll. In his memoir written half a century later, Harold wrote that the move to South Karori was, quote, for the benefit of the, of the children's health. I agree with claims by biographers that Annie and Harold wanted their children to enjoy a country childhood in a rural retreat. But rather than a romantic gesture, I conclude in the book that that was prim primarily a flight out of a frightened city. The best evidence for this is a statement by the local medical officer of health a year before the Beechams moved to Karori. Quote, many of the public were panic-stricken, some fleeing the district while others were se are sending their families to more healthy situations while they themselves attend to their business. These words haunted me while writing Wellington Biography of a City that Neil mentioned, um, my commissioned Wellington City Council History, published in 2006. I quote those words in my 1890s chapter, Illuminations, but never quite knew what lay behind them. The main focus of my research for that account was 125 500-page tall volumes of council minutes, bound in calfskin with gold embossed titles on their spines. Minute books 8 to 10, spanning the period 1887 to 1894, the years I am talking about today, are, are, are peppered with alarmed, even hysterical references to continuing epidemics of infectious disease. They include cholera, typhoid, diphtheria, scarlet fever, smallpox, and tuberculosis. They chronicle the extraordinary, extraordinary pressures on city fathers as bodies piled up. But the minutes and other council documents skate over, I'd even say suppress, the soaring death toll between 1885 and 1891. I now believe that these statistics were too shameful and too reputationally damaging to city fathers to be made public. Not until 2012, and asked to give a talk about Wellington at the time of, of KM, would I begin to glimpse the hidden truth. Only then would I discover how a brave Wellington mayor, a real old Tory blue blood and future prime minister, used them to shame his fellow councillors into action. It would be the starting point of a strange, beautiful excitement. So what was happening locally at the time KM was born? Most city fathers who populate the calfskin minute books were self-made men who regularly voted and elected themselves onto the council, individuals like John Plimmer. And I see John has one or two relatives here today. Um, they're everywhere. Um, these men were mostly the propertied elite, reluctant for the council to fund infrastructure that would increase their own annual rates. Writing of their British equivalents, Tristram Hunt notes, Quote, they fought vigorously against any improvements that necessitated a rise in the rates. 
defending their right to be dirty but free. Wellington is not the only city in the colony to face epidemics of infectious disease from dirty water and primitive sewage disposal, of course. For centuries, disease was seen as inevitable and even expected among poor city dwellers living in cramped and sanitary conditions in the Northern Hemisphere. What was different was that by the late 19th century, a new breed of public health campaigners like John Snow saw building underground sewers and providing clean water as a way to stop it. A major factor, of course, in the transmission of infectious diseases was the primitive level of understanding on the part of officials of how these diseases were passed on. We now know that typhoid could be spread by drinking milk, for example, tainted by the waste of infected people. It could come from as simple a source as unwashed hands. The other great risk was sewage-contaminated water being piped into houses or collected in dirty buckets from communal taps. But at the time, it was believed that that disease was spread by contagion through bad air, or miasma, arising from the smell of putrefying animal and human waste. That explains that why that awful passage that I quoted earlier about children in the harbour focused on the odours arising from the, from, the, uh, from the sea. The true risk to the youngster's health, being exposed to lethal bacteria and sewage contaminated water was simply not understood. Despite ignorance over the exact cause of illnesses, councils like Wellington's were still aware of the need to provide clean water. In the early 1880s, early 1870s, Councillor Plimmer of the Wellington City Council Committed, uh, committed, sorry, the Wellington City Council Water Committee worked tirelessly to ensure a supply of clean water. But the next logical step, spending city funds to remove the waste, was not taken. Ratepayers opted for a dirty city rather than an indebted one. Plymouth said the harbour, with its strong tidal flows, could easily take all the waste a growing city could create. He urged citizens to Put aside that sentimental nonsense of polluting the bay, and, to, and you will confer on Wellington a great blessing and make it one of the healthiest cities in the world. The cheap solution, open wooden drains, soon became a hazard, creating a stench during the summer, overflowing in heavy rain. Most Wellingtonians still couldn't get, afford to get connected to the water supply and depended on communal street taps. As smelly waste lay in the ditches and on the shores of the harbour, Hundreds of citizens, and children in particular, fell victim to wave upon wave of infectious diseases, disease epidemics, chiefly typhoid. At first, the most deaths occurred in the Chiaro slums, an area bounded by Wakefield Street, Buckle Street, Cuba Street, and Cambridge Terrace. By the 1880s, this area was crammed with undrained and unventilated working-class cottages, boarding houses, and crisscrossed by small, dirty lanes. Some of the unpaved, crowded streets around Tory Street and off Cambridge Terrace had 30 houses to the acre, ma matching the densest, grubbiest streets of London. In 1885, 30 under, uh, sorry, in 1885, 63 people, 30 under five years old, died from infectious disease, three quarters of them in Tiaro. In 1888, the year of KM's birth, the number of deaths dropped to 55, but would soon begin rising to nearly double that number. Places like Holland Street off Tory Street, where it was found one family of 10 slept in two upstairs rooms, became incubators for the infections. For sanitation, occupants used buckets emptied once in five or six weeks. Thorndon, on the other hand, 
on the other side of, of uh, Lambton Harbour might have appeared a safe sanctuary from all this foul Dickensian squalor. What could possibly happen to a family like the Beechams, tucked away in a two-storey wooden home up on Tinnacory Road? But a sign that Thorndon was not immune to epidemics came in mid-1889 with a sensational and nearly fatal typhoid case in the grandest house around here. The hapless victim was six-year-old Lord Cranley, the young son and heir of the new newly arrived governor, Lord Onslow, the most powerful man in the colony. Young Crawley contracted typhoid fever at the palatial government house, then, with it, then located with the beehive, as now stands, with its specially constructed brick drains, and the boy nearly died. It exposed the awful truth that the wealthy and ennobled too could not hide from the risk of diseases caused by bad sanitary practices. The Onslows fled Wellington, finding a sanctuary in Nelson, and the primitive state of the capital's drains became a national and even international laughingstock. The government was mortified. Onslow very publicly cut short his stay and a replacement governor proved difficult to find. Young Cranley survived, but 49 Wellington under fives were not that, that lucky that year. The council and its incoming mayor, solicitor Francis Dillon Bell, came under enormous pressure to cleanse the city. Bylaws that were passed abolish, uh, abolishing cesspits in the filthy lanes of Tiaro and requiring the burial of night soil would not be enough. As the deaths continued, plans were dusted off for an elaborate hydraulic sewage scheme pumping the waste through iron pipes over the hills and out to Cook Strait. In 1890, the city fathers accepted the idea of raising a loan worth 31 mil in today's money, and a poll, a poll of eligible citizens approved it, but the decision was disallowed due to an anomaly in the legislation. Much to the alarm of most citizens, the loan proposal was shelved. It appeared indefinitely. During 1891, as the council sat paralysed, a further 104 residents, including 55 children, died of typhoid and other infectious disease. Bell showed himself a mayor for testing times. He and medical officer of health and public health campaigner, Dr William Chappell, basically conspired to get the sanitation loan raised and approved. I know he was a prominent a eugenicist, so we don't, we don't care. <laughs> but he becomes that later on. <laughs> here, here he's still a good guy. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> in, 18, in April 1892, Chapel published an eye-watering, nose-clenching 15-page report that shamed the city. It was in this document that Dr. Chapel talked to families fleeing the city in a panicked state. Bell quietly circulated the document to lawmakers, then used it and the terrifying body count as ammunition at a massive public meeting in September 1892 at the Opera House. Bell's long and emotionally charged address that night began thus. Every year with unfailing regularity, we have at least one outbreak of zymotic infectious disease in one form or another, and all medical experts agree that the existence of the germs of such diseases depends chiefly on defective sanitary conditions. This ghastly list of 548 deaths, representing doubtless at least 3,000 cases of zymotic disease in six years, does not represent more than a fraction of the sickness and pain suffered by Wellington. I know it has been the practice to hush such matters and to denounce the man who will hint at them as disloyal to Wellington. 
I wish I could proclaim them from the housetops. I was chairman of the local board of health the year during the outbreak of typhoid and having had this, that dreadful experience, I refused to be silent. A single report of that speech and those statistics appeared in the Liberal Daily, the New Zealand Times. The Post made no, no mention of it. Nor was it ever mentioned in any Wellington City Council document that I've ever seen. Construction work began at the end of 1893 and would take six more years to complete. By the mid-1890s, Bell's mayoral successor reported that typhoid was showing a very considerable decrease during the past two years. A terrible and largely forgotten chapter of Wellington's history appeared to be over. I'd now like to quickly turn, uh, before ending, uh, from the public to the private realm. I want to consider for a few minutes the domestic circumstances of the Beecham family as these events unfolded. The key individuals, of course, were the parents, Harold and Annie, and three little girls, including Catherine, and a fourth, Gwendolyn, born late in 1890. Harold was already the ambitious, energetic, and prominent businessman, making money by the cartload, and appointed to the boards of several committees, companies. Annie Beecham's first-hand experience of the epidemics cannot have helped her state of mind. Now, where am I going with this? On the 9th of January, 1891, baby Gwendolyn, as I mentioned, died at Tinnacory Road, barely three months old. Catherine left us vivid recollections of her baby sister in her journals written 30 years later. She describes the scene in her mother's bedroom, an already sickly Gwen consuming most of her grandmother's time. In one episode, Annie languid against the pillows and eating sago, refused to allow her two-year-old daughter to kiss her. I also discovered hers was not the family's only experience of sudden death during this protracted season of epidemics. A year later, the Beechams lost a second family member, then a third. Annie's 23-year-old brother, Henry, succumbed to a cholera-like disease in Blenheim. Seven weeks after her brother's funeral, Annie gave birth to her fifth child, Jean. In March 1893, Harold's sister, Florence, died of typhoid. The family moved to Karori soon afterwards. If it was good enough for the titled Onslows to flee Karori because of lethal microbes, it was good enough for other reputable citizens. By 1893, the, the greener fringes of the city were increasingly being populated by families keen to avoid the continuing epidemics. Most could not afford to go as far as Karori or to as lavish and spacious a setting as the Beecham's homestead Chesney Wold. The family did not return to Thorndon until 1898 as the scheme approached completion. I want finally to turn to a brief consideration of KM's journals and short stories with a focus on Tonakori Road and South Karori. Can they provide us with any clues to the family's motivations in moving out to the country? I would not be the first to read in the various representations of Annie and Harold Beecham an unashamed expression of superiority and open distaste towards people of a lower class. Let's face it, KM's mum at times sounds like an outrageous snob. But I wonder whether underlying this was genuine phobia on Annie's part about the risk to her children of contact with people living in insanitary conditions. And we see these views seeping into her, her, her daughter's stories. The male hero of A Birthday damns his surroundings, clearly identifiable, identifiable as Tinakori Road, um, as an, an unhealthy whole. Agitated about his wife's imminent labour, he stalks the streets muttering, everything here is filthy. The whole place might be done with the plague. Earlier he watches a servant girl polish his shoe with her spit. Quote, slut of a girl, 
Heaven knows what infectious disease may be breeding now in that boot. The garden party openly addresses the risk of catching diseases from the, 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 the poverty-stricken people who lived in little mean dwellings in Saunders Lane. We can see the Beecham's actual residence now demolished on the rise to the left. It's the one up there on the, the left-hand side. Um, when the Sheridans were little, they were forbidden to set foot there because of the revolting language and of what they might catch. Prelude sees Wellington damned as a whole of a town. Linda Burnell stating that at least Karori won't kill us. Dread of filthy Thorndon lingers, however. Perhaps this explains finally why Stanley Burnell is overtaken by a sort of panic whenever he approached near home. Before he was well inside the gate, he would shout to anyone within sight, within sight is everything all right? So I'd now like to recap. KM's birth in, in in 1888 came in the middle of a long-running public health catastrophe, killing nearly one in 55 residents a year. Her family's move to Karori was not based on a romantic desire for a rural Arcadia. It was primarily a flight to safety from a deadly urban environment. And most importantly for researchers, overindulgence in KM can be hazardous to your health. I want to end by dedicating this talk to the much maligned Annie B and also to acknowledge dear old Guy Morris. Thank you.